Welcome to Catholic Stuff You Should Know, a J10 initiative. Hey, welcome to the podcast. Father John here. This is a uh, special release uh, on a Tuesday, so the regular recordings will be coming out on Thursday per usual. But I wanted to uh, post a um, talk that I gave at a marriage prep retreat last weekend. This was for uh, Our Lady of Lords Catholic Church, so I was with... uh, the one and only Father Brian Larkin and his partner in crime, Father Sean Conroy, and uh, 31 marriage prep couples. Um, and uh, the talk is called The Bourbon Talk, and it's a rather comprehensive uh, 45 minutes on uh, marriage and uh, all the problems and all the challenges that the uh, church's teachings uh, face us in the modern world. So uh, this is offered to anybody who has interest in this topic, um, but specifically to those of you who are preparing for marriage, maybe looking for a little more to augment uh, the process. So hope you enjoy it, and uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you on Thursday. Yeah, that's going to All right, I am a huge proponent of Maker's Mark bourbon, uh, which I'm drinking right now because uh, on Wednesday... Father Brian and I were talking, and I said, hey, what talk am I giving this weekend? It's like in three days. And he said, oh, yeah, you're giving the bourbon talk. And I was like, I have to give the bourbon talk? He's like, you're giving the bourbon talk. And I was like, oh, crap. All right, so the bourbon talk is the last talk of the day, and it's everything you don't want to talk about. That's why I'm drinking bourbon right now. (laughs) So here's to you. Tonight's talk is basically on um, what is marriage, And then I'm going to break down what I'm going to call the five postmodern dogmas of marriage. Postmodern meaning the worldly, what they're telling you marriage is. And we've all been told this. We've all heard it in media, in movies, in everything. It's in the the water, it's in the air we breathe, and I just want to name them and then talk about why things seem permissible and then hopefully tie that into why the church says, now this is where we delineate and this is where it's different, okay? So we're going to talk about uh, the five big ones, the five big things that uh, you don't really want to hear and uh, probably will struggle with. And you know what? That's really good. It's really good. If you're, if you're kind of agitated and challenged by this talk tonight, um, you're, in a, you're in a great spot. If you're like, I already know everything and I already commit to everything, that's okay. But you need to realize that this is hard. This is the most radical and countercultural thing you'll ever do, is getting married in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church is the only thing that has a comprehensive vision of what marriage and sexuality is that is contrary to the world and is uncompromised and is unchanging and will never compromise and will never change. And so to step into that, to get married in the church, uh, is to take on a huge challenge interiorly, personally. And uh, we welcome that challenge, right? But as Father Brian said last night, we hope that that challenge comes within a larger ambit of really feeling loved and welcomed and received exactly where you're at today. What I'm about to talk about is being proposed to you, right? As Father Brian said last night, it is not being imposed. Uh, But what you're going to find, hopefully, is that when you hear it in its wholeness, it actually makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make it easy, right? But it makes a lot of sense. All right, so before we get into that, though, uh, I love to ski. I love to telemark ski. Uh, telemark skiers are vain. We think we're better than everybody. Uh, if you don't know what telemark skiing is, it's the original kind of skiing invented in Telemark, Norway. And uh, it came back into style in the 70s. It, you see these guys with free heels kind of doing this lunge thing down the mountains. I love doing this. Uh, it's, it's one of my favorite, favorite hobbies. Um, I haven't always been a skier, though. My mom's from Minnesota, so the family religion in the house was hockey. I grew up playing ice hockey my whole life. And... Um, 
So I didn't have time to ski. Uh, and then when I was uh, 20, I came to seminary in Denver, and I met this guy at the time, a young guy named Brian Larkin, uh, and he took me skiing, and uh, he taught me how to ski. And uh, there was some painful first days. Anybody who's like learned to ski, it is not easy, especially with a guy. Father Brian is an amazing uh, bump skier. And he took me right into the bump runs. Like, it was just like immediate, just like, okay, you're going to learn. It's just trial by fire. Just, you're going right into it. And we would just lap, lap. Mind dump is this one run on Copper Mountain. I still have PTSD from doing it. It's just like, because he's like, again, 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 again. Uh, and now he's lame and old. He doesn't ski anymore. So it's great. <laughs> we talk about the inevitable slide into obesity. And uh, he's not obese, but <laughs> the late 30s doesn't come off as fast, so that's the bourbon talking, sorry. So I was skiing in Crested Butte, which is my uh, favorite mountain, skiing there in December, and I was with my nephew, so you met Katie and Jordan, my sister and brother-in-law this morning, and they have uh, four little boys, and the seven and the six-year-old are getting good at skiing, and uh, so they, they call me Zio Gio. I lived in Italy for four years when I was working on my doctorate. Zio means uncle in Italian, and Gio is short for Giovanni John, so Uncle John, Zio Gio. So uh, we're on the lift, and uh, we're skiing these uh, greens and blues, and they said, Zio Gio, we want to do a black. And I was like, all right, I think you guys are ready for a black. And I was like, now I've become Father Brian. I was like, I'm not taking him uh, on crazy stuff, but I had one run in mind. It's called Independence Run. It's a groomed run on the front side of Crested Butte. And so we take the high lift up, and they're, like, super excited. They're just, like, I can just see them just, like... And having little ones on a chairlift is kind of terrifying, too. <laughs> like, hold them. They're like, quit holding this on it. I'm like, quit squiggling so much. I'm going to fall to your death here. So I'm holding them, and we get off, and I'm like, are you guys ready for your black run? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, okay, we're just going to ski around the corner, and then we're going to get onto the run there. And they're like, okay, so we ski down around, closed. Closed sign. The run is closed, and I was like, "Oh no!" I looked to my right, and it's this double black diamond uh, mogul run. That is, that's all we can do. This is the only thing we have at the top of this mountain. And so I was like, "Boys, we're skiing that," and they're like, "We can't ski that." And I was like, "I was like, you have to ski that because we have nowhere else to go." And so I was like, okay, just lean into the mountain as you crash, because you're going to crash all the way down this thing. And so they're, they're doing their pizza pie turns. These moguls that are literally bigger than them, and they just crash in everywhere. And they get to the bottom, and they were like, that was amazing, let's do it again. And I was like, your mother's going to kill me. We're not, we're, not, we're not skiing that bump run again. I start with that story, though, because um, for those of us who ski, or do anything really, um, we learn by skiing with people who know what they're doing, and by being challenged. Father Brian uh, wasn't trying to torture me by taking me and pushing me beyond my comfort zone. Part of, there really are thresholds in skiing. You're just never going to get better unless you push yourself and unless there are those moments of challenge. And the way that you learn how to ski is by skiing with good skiers. Father Sean is also a great skier, right? You, you, you get better by skiing with people who are better than you. That's part of how it works. But the other important thing, of course, is not just being with good skiers, but having them teach you how to ski. I remember the day when Father Brian was like, I, was, I kept losing control in the bumps. I would, I would, uh, I would just kind of get too much speed and then kind of crash. And he, he would say these things to me that are still seared into my memory. He said, quit skiing around the moguls, ski into them. Because when you hit them, you pop into the next kind of pocket and it controls your speed. I remember the day when he said to me, quit leaning back. You got to stay, stay forward in the bumps. 
it's a very different posture uh, when, you're, when you're hitting the bumps. And he's like, let your lower body do the work. These little moments, these little correctives for me uh, changed everything. They made me love skiing. And they made me want to ski for the rest of my life. But if I wasn't challenged, if I didn't have friends who were better than me, and I wasn't somewhat open to learning, I never would have really enjoyed skiing. You see where this is going. Why is it that in marriage, we just want to enter into something that we actually don't know what to do? We think we don't need people to model it. We're not really interested in hearing about the form of it or how to be better at it. Why is that? Well, it's because marriage is obviously way more significant, way more personal, and way more um, complicated than skiing is. It's not just a hobby that you're entering into. Right? This isn't a ski class or a bourbon class or something. I'm introducing you to a topic. This is your whole life. In a few months, all of you are going to enter into something that is going to definitively change the rest of your life. It's going to create what we call a state in life. You're no longer going to be two. You will become one, one flesh, one reality, one being in some ways. Marriage is an unbelievable undertaking. It's perilous, it's adventurous, it's exciting. It's the greatest thing you'll ever do. It's the greatest thing you will ever undertake. And so to set aside these days and these hours today to really talk about marriage, this is really beautiful. And I'm always struck by the fact that nobody really is doing this, right? My friends who are not Catholic are not preparing for marriage. They start planning a wedding. And there's a whole industry, as you all well know, that's set to say, we want you to overplan everything. We want you to obsess about every detail, right? I remember my ordination, my mom was going nuts about the centerpieces on the tables. I was like, centerpieces? She's like, the centerpieces are the most important thing in this whole weekend. And I was like, who gives a crap about the centerpieces? She's like, you know nothing about centerpieces. I was like, so we had great centerpieces, right? It was good. So you want to plan all that stuff, but the purpose of engagement is not wedding planning, as you know. The purpose of engagement is to prepare for a sacrament, to prepare for a relationship, a different kind of relationship. And so the heart of this first talk, which Father Brian already alluded to this afternoon, is to say, what if we just get down to the most basic question, which is, what is marriage? What is marriage? If I was to just go through the room and just say, all right, give me the definition, everybody would be like hiding, right? <laughs> give me the bourbon, you know, exactly. It's really hard to define marriage, right? If I was in your shoes, I would have no idea what to say. I would know it deep down. You know what it is. It's in you. You wouldn't be doing this if you didn't know what marriage was. But to be able to articulate what marriage is, to hear it defined, and then to hear the consequences, the effects of it, the reality that it is, is it permeates into different aspects of human life. You've probably never heard that before. And so what we're going to first start with is the question of what is marriage, and then we're going to move into some of the kind of what we call consequences, but that's not really the best word. It's more of kind of the effects of it, of the reality that is marriage. So the first thing to note is that there are two rival notions of what marriage is. And again, I'm playing off of uh, Father Brian's earlier remarks. There is the Catholic version, which we could also call the traditional version, the Judeo-Christian version of what marriage is. It's not just Catholic. And then there's this postmodern, what we call revisionist understanding of what marriage is. And we have to distinguish them because the world is proposing one thing to you, and tonight we're proposing another thing. And they are radically contradictory. They are completely incompatible, and they, are comple they really are completely different. 
So we'll start with the, the traditional understanding of what marriage is. Marriage is a kind of friendship. Ian and Rachel already heard this, right? This is my one, my one couple. Uh, you're all uh, Lord's couples, I think. This is my, my one couple. So Ian, <laughs> Ian and I've known since we were here at CU together 10 years ago when I was his chaplain. So marriage is friendship. Marriage is a kind of friendship. What is friendship? Well, Aristotle, St. Thomas Aquinas, the great thinkers, describe friendship as mutual benevolence arising from the communication of goods. Okay, what does that mean? Benevolence, just willing the good of the other. Right? Willing the good of the other. And how does that happen? It happens through the communication of goods or the sharing of goods. Right? So friendships take many different forms based on the kinds of goods that they share. I have great friendships with these two priests. We share different goods, though, and so the friendships look really different. Right? I was thinking of Father Sean, one of my favorite memories. of <coughs> He's a great, great climber. And uh, we always wanted to climb the Maroon Bells together. Uh, and to do the actual traverse between north and south. Where did we go south and north? South. So when you look at the Maroon Bells, we went from the south one to the north one. And it was a great, <laughs> unbelievable adventure. Um, if he wasn't interested in climbing, I don't think I would want to do that with him. And I think it would be mutual, right? <laughs> you have to have the same loves, the same interests, the same desires, the same goods, so to speak. He has the gear. He has the experience. He has the technique. We're making decisions, kind of working through these cruxes and over these kind of chimneys on these rocks. It was amazing. We share that in our friendship, right? It's something that comes from the goods of life. You have inside of you what's called will. You have free will, and your free will is not untethered. It doesn't just do whatever it wants. You don't get to wake up in the morning and decide, what do I want to do? What do I want to like? Your will is automatically connected to something that's called the good. The good is something that's outside of you. And that good can be climbing. That good can be bourbon. That good can be the Catholic faith. There are so many goods that fill your life, and as you reflect on your marriage, you're going to realize, what were the goods that drew us together? At some point in that first awkward date or phone call or whatever it was, right, you were like, oh, we clicked on that. That was kind of that was a little dopamine hit. It's like, whoa, okay, this, this, is, this, is, this is taking, right? There's something here. And then you talk about some other topic, and it's like, oh, that's interesting. And you connect on this. You're sharing goods, sharing goods. And as you grow into that, you start to realize that I want to will the good of this other. And then you hit that crazy, wild, scary moment when you realize, I want to will the good of this other, this woman, this man, more than anything else in my life. So much so that I want to draw in everything else that I have into the one thing that matters, which is willing her or his good. And that's the moment you got down on one knee, men, and you said, will you marry me? And the rest... It's history, as we say. Marriage is a kind of friendship. It is the most beautiful, the most noble, the most powerful, the most intimate of all friendships. We call that a conjugal friendship. Now, the word conjugal strikes up kind of funny uh, memories. I think of the movie Office Space, where they have some funny uh, remarks on, on the notion of conjugal. But conjugal just means <laughs> conjugium, with the bond. With the bond. Conjugal means with the bond. So your friendship is bonded together. Our friendships are not. We have great friendships, great guys. Even if Father Brian talks like we're in a relationship, you know, which is, <laughs> makes me drink. Uh, you know. <laughs> Conjugal friendship is possible in marriage. Right? So we have, your, your life is hopefully replete with friendships. One of them is so comprehensive that it creates a bond that is indestructible. You cannot get rid of it. 
This is the classical vision of what marriage is. That doesn't really exist much in our culture anymore. The revisionist understanding of marriage is not a notion that marriage is friendship. It's not a notion that marriage is this bond that is comprehensive. Marriage in our culture is fundamentally delineated as the intensity of your emotions. All right? So it's not about willing the good of the other. It's not about this kind of exchanging of goods that arises out of mutual benevolence. It's about this intensive emotional experience that does bond you together in a way. It really draws you together very intensely. And certainly you've all had that. If there was not deep and powerful emotional experience as part of your life together, you wouldn't be sitting here today. But the definition of marriage in our postmodern culture, which has been revised in the last 50 years from the way that people lived, not just for centuries, but for millennium, has radically changed. It has been reconditioned. And that is what you've been told marriage is. And if marriage is based in emotional intensity, then it's not indissoluble and it's not permanent. Then if the emotions go, so goes the marriage. Falling out of love then would say, well, this was nice for a while, but we don't have the love that we once had. And so we move on. It also unravels things. It changes things because then anybody who enters into any kind of intense emotional relationship can say, well, we want to get married. We want to call this marriage. Okay. So this is the two different kind of ways that we're thinking about marriage. Is it an act of the will? Is it a bond? Or is it something that arises out of the intensity of one's experience? That's the question. And again, both of these are talking about emotions. One of them is saying, your marriage is not founded in emotions. The other one is saying, it really is. It's about how you feel. Do you feel like you should marry this person? Then you should be, you should be able to marry this person. If you don't feel like you want to be married to this person anymore, then you should not feel like you have to be married to this person. And no one can tell you that your feelings are wrong. Sound familiar? Yeah. That's it. That's, that's, the, that's the way that the culture is thinking and reflecting on marriage. But back to this kind of Judeo-Christian vision, the classical vision of marriage. The bond is comprehensive. So it's not just an aspect of your life. It's not just a relationship. Katie and Jordan this morning were talking about togetherness. I thought that was a great, great image. You are bringing everything into relationship with one another. I did a very long, boring doctorate, which is going to be published in about a year, and you can all, I'm sure you'll be waiting at bar, you know, Amazon to buy <laughs> copies of it, right? And it's, it's going to be 433 pages of just the most amazing thing you've ever read in your life. Just joking, you will not buy it. Don't buy it. I told my sister to look nice on your, like, Etsy bookshelf in your bedroom, Katie. And she's like, whatever, I'll buy a copy. So. But I wrote this dissertation on a word called perichoresis, which is an ancient Greek word. Perichoresis is a word that we use to define how Jesus reveals who God is. Perichoresis means to mutually indwell in another person, to have this kind of reciprocal relationship. So much so that you could say that Matt and Shannon, if they were modeling a perichoretic relationship, on the day that they get married, there's a mutual indwelling, so much so that you can't understand Matt apart from his relationship to Shannon. Now, where does this come from? This comes from God. We don't believe that God is this kind of static idea kind of up in heaven somewhere. That's how we've reduced him to. That's part of the kind of postmodern milieu that we live in. 
God is an intimate relationship of love. That's why marriage models God's life more than anything. God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. We believe in one God, but that that one God is three persons who are themselves the perfection of love. So the Father dwells in the Son, the Son dwells in the Father, and the Holy Spirit is the love of this relationship. Perichoresis, mutual indwelling, is the heart of the Trinity. And you are going to image that perichoresis in your marriage in an unbelievable way. This is why when Jesus comes among us, he elevates natural marriage to a sacramental level, sacramental or supernatural level. He wants to sanctify it. He wants not just for you guys to have a great party this summer, whatever it is, and to really enjoy each other and have great emotional experiences of this kind of bonded relationship. That's part of it. But he wants something so much more. He wants you to image his life. He wants you to image his relationship with the Father. And I think it's unbelievable that you can look to the person next to you and say, what we are undertaking is something that is going to not only image God, but it means that I can't understand myself apart from this relationship anymore. It means the good of willing you, of choosing you, is everything now. It's everything. You are everything in my life, and I am everything to you because I give everything to you. And when you make those vows, which for us as priests is such a privilege to be with you, such an unbelievable privilege, because you are the ones who marry. You are the ones who affect the sacrament. You are the ones who create a bond that is sealed and sanctified by God. You are the ones who enter into a perichoretic relationship. We witness it and receive it on behalf of the church, and then we're going to pray what's called the nuptial blessing over you, praying for an outpouring of God's spirit upon you for the rest of your lives. But you do this. You're going to do this soon. And it's unbelievable. But it has consequences. And this is where we have to turn for part two. So these are what I would call the five, take a big drink here, five postmodern dogmas of marriage. Now, why do I call them dogmas? Dogma is just the Greek word for teaching. But they're dogmas. There's dogmas. The media, your workplace, probably your family, friends, they're telling you, you have to believe these. You have to believe what, I'm, what, what we say about marriage and the family because otherwise you're full of hate. You're filled with hate, you're antiquated, you're patriarchal, whatever. We're being bullied right now in the culture if we don't believe and assent to these dogmas. Now, before I go into that, I need to just say that um, there was a number of years in my life where I not only was not practicing the faith, but I was actively trying to destroy it in my family, in my friendships. I was working against everything that I was raised with, and I hated it. I hated the Catholic faith. I wasn't just kind of a nice, lukewarm guy. That was my brother. I was actively, <laughs> actively trying, and my sister also, I was actively trying to undermine and destroy the faith. I was reading Nietzsche. I was reading Marx. Right? I was reading these masters of suspicion who are saying, the world's all about power. And the Catholic Church is the agent of power. It, this is the most dominant, powerful, corrupt institution in the history of the world. And you've got to get as far away as you can from this thing and do what you can to destroy it. This is me. This is me. This really was. This, is not, this isn't rhetoric. This is real. And it was through some circumstances that I, I won't go into tonight for the sake of brevity that um, I realized that I was completely wrong. And I had no idea what I was talking about. But a lot of the reason I hated the church was because I didn't want to assent to everything that I knew would follow. 
from saying yes to this thing. If I was sitting in your seats back where I was and I heard that first part, I'd be like, that sounds great. Perichoretic, whatever. That's fine. But yeah, this is all very good. But this next part, no, no, no. Nope. That is impossible. And what I realized was that I was working from my lifestyle that I wanted. And I wanted to work out a worldview that conformed to that lifestyle. The lifestyle didn't flow from the worldview. The, world, the, the lifestyle was, this is what I'm going to do, right? I'm going to listen to fish and smoke weed every day. And I'm going to hook up with whoever I want. And no one's going to tell me what to do, right? And this was back before it was cool to smoke weed. Okay? I'd like to point that out, right? <laughs> Some of us were doing this before it was cool. Okay? <laughs> and I'm not a proponent now, but I, I would say uh, it is... Uh, it made, me, it made me really stupid and really selfish, so don't do it. But I realized that. I was like, my intellectual convictions, and I could cover it with quotes from Nietzsche and Marx and all this kind of bullshit, but I realized it was, it was just about, I know what I want to do, so I'm going to decide what I believe. I'm going to work backwards. Some of you might relate to that. Some of you might not. But that's where I was, and that's where I was for a number of years in high school. It was an experience of mercy that led me back to Christ. And the reason for that is because I wasn't satisfied with my perfectly self-constructed worldview. I wasn't satisfied with a lifestyle that was hedonistic and indulgent. It was making me miserable. Why? Because I was fundamentally selfish. Ask my family. Get Katie back up here and be like, tell us what he was like when he was 18. I was a horrible human being. I was horrible in the selfishness. I lived, I lived for myself. And those are the most miserable people. And so everything fell apart at the end of my high school. And I met and I encountered people who said, maybe there's another way. Maybe this whole Christian thing is, is possible. Maybe it is possible to live this way. And it started me down a different path. And what I realized, looking back, was that part of the way the culture wanted to destroy my faith, which it did successfully, was to fragment everything. Fragments. You can go after this, you can go after this, you can bring up this, this. But when you bring it back together into a whole, and you look at the Catholic faith as a whole, it's the most meaningful, intelligible, and profound thing ever, because it's not human. It's not human-made. And if it was, we wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be. I certainly would not be a priest. This thing is not of the world. It doesn't make sense. It's too perfect. It's too perfect. But it's hidden, and we have so many layers that we have to break open in order to do that. All right, so that's the culture. That's where I'm at. I remember being in Rome. Um, I had a couple absolute favorite places. A couple people are going to Rome for their honeymoons, right? Be in touch. I have restaurant recommendations for you. One of my favorites is a place called Costanza. Did we go to Costanza? No, we, we were drinking spritzes in the. Yeah. Josh and I met a couple years ago, and we were Aperol spritzes. Make sure you have those when you go to Rome. Um, but this place, Costanzo, is my favorite restaurant. And you, when, you go to Costanzo, when you go to these Italian places, you order the dish. Like, every restaurant has its dish. And so, Costanza, you order the Bucatini alla Amatruciana, which is this amazing... Uh, Larkin actually makes it. We call it Bucatini alla Larkin, but it's, uh, it's quite good. <laughs> uh, and so, I'm sitting there one night, uh, and I go to Costanza a lot, and I'm sitting with uh, my cousin, who's this 14-year-old um, girl from Vancouver. And uh, it's actually my cousin's daughter, but whatever. Cousin. Beatrice, right? <laughs> You're lucky there's nobody named Beatrice in this. That was, that was bold. 
She's a beautiful girl. She's actually an actress and a young actress. But she said to me something that was really interesting. We had a great conversation one night. She looked at me and she said, John, I used to not like being Catholic, but now I do because I realized that I don't have to, li- I don't have to listen to everything. I can choose what it means for me to be Catholic. And I can choose what I want to believe when I want to believe it. Now, she's in the art world, okay? So she had a lot of gay friends. And this is obviously, this is part of our conversation that night. And uh, I just looked at her and I said, that's interesting. Let's talk. I want to hear more about that. And so we kind of talked and talked about this, this idea that you kind of, you can appropriate your, the Catholic thing to whatever extent that you want. And then at one point I looked at her and I said, all right, Bia, how do you know it's Catholic anymore? And how do you know this isn't your faith? This isn't your church. At what point do you delineate that? If you pick and choose, we'll take this, hold off on this, kind of this, that kind of thing. At what point is it not integral anymore? At what point is it not Catholic? That's, that's a huge question. And it was a beautiful question. It was a beautiful conversation. And I think that we've been lied by the culture, but we've also been lied in the church to think that we can kind of take some of this and leave some of this. And I'm telling you, it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. It's all or nothing. doesn't mean you don't struggle with it. If you're not, as I said earlier, if you're not struggling with it, I don't think you're living it. This is hard. This is the hardest stuff. The church's teaching on marriage and sex is the hardest thing to live in the culture right now, right? We're in clerics everywhere we go. We're talking to people. We understand, right? We're in the confessionals. We get it. We struggle with it as well. I was talking to a gay friend of mine last week, and he was telling me about a new relationship he's in. And he's a Catholic guy. And he's trying to live out the faith. And you know what? He's my friend. And there's no contradiction between saying, this is what the church teaches. And I, I, I believe everything the church teaches. And I love you. And you're my friend. And you're a really good man. I think that there's some more conversations we need to have. And I need to listen more and understand where you're coming from. But also, these things are not in contradiction. All right? So, here's the five. And some of these we've already kind of hit on. Because we're kind of rolling through it in different ways. Number one, and these are, these are the five dogmas of the postmodern world, so we don't, these, we don't believe these. This is not Catholic teaching. This is the opposite. Number one, marriage is founded in emotional intensity. All right, so I mentioned that already. That's kind of the basic tenet of the revisionist understanding of marriage. It's emotionally based, which means that it's not permanent and it's repeatable. So what does the church say about that? Well... Go back to the other side, to the traditional understanding of marriage. If you enter into a bond that is so total and so comprehensive and so uniting, and it's really a bond, like you're creating something that's not you. That's what's amazing about marriage. When I talk about a bond, conjugal friendship, there's something that you are and that you have that's not you. Marriage is not something that you kind of put on. It's not something that you get to decide to be or not be or take off. You create something that exists that binds you. And you can't get out of it. You can't get out of it. And what's beautiful is to watch married couples as they move through life and to realize that you, you, you get to a point where you're like, I can't even imagine this person without their spouse. Mike and Mary Lynn Baird, classic example from last night. Like, there is no Mike without Mary Lynn. There is no Mary Lynn without Mike. This is why the death of a spouse is so, is so tragic. This is why marriage ends with death. Because the two people are bonded together for life so intensely, so deeply, so completely, that there's nothing. There's nothing else. 
So you create this bond. And that's why the bond is permanent and it's, irre- it's unrepeatable. You're going to do this thing once for the rest of your life with one person, with one woman or one man, and that's it. You can't do it again. We don't like that, though. That strikes us as kind of unfair. Like, and nobody sits in a marriage prep meeting thinking, well, is there an exit plan here? You know, can we do like a, uh, I don't know. Can we onboard for a couple months and then if this thing doesn't work, just kind of, you know, check it out. Or 10 years in, kind of do a kind of review and just kind of see where we're at. You know what you're in for. You want this. But half of marriages fail. And half of marriages fall apart. And when we talk to those people who are divorced and remarried, a lot of times it's very emotionally driven. Right? My godmother, divorced, remarried. We've had many conversations. We've had many conversations with my mom about it. It's just, it's just so charged with emotion that you can't think through it. So you got to think through it now so that you can hold strong and understand this is what we're about. Permanence and unrepeatability. That means that divorce is not possible. Even for people that we love, even for people who suffer, even people who have terrible marriages, divorce is different than separation. And there are very legitimate reasons for people to separate. But this is the teaching of Jesus. This isn't the teaching of Father John or Father Brian or the big bad Catholic Church. This is, he's very clear on everything I'm talking about here. Divorce and remarriage are not possible. Annulments are not Catholic divorce, all right? And they look like that and people talk like that and we can go into that some other time. But divorce is not possible. It is not permit, permissive. It's not permitted. Why? Not because we're just really, we're just hard asses and we're like, suck it up. Because we really believe that what you're undertaking and what you're doing is so, so unique and so irrepeatable that you just you can't do this again. This is the most important thing you will ever do in your life. Why? Because this is the only thing that you will only do once permanently and in a completely undivided way. All right, so that's the first one. Marriage is not rooted in emotional intensity. Number two, sex and marriage are separable. Sex and marriage are separable. So one of the things that we have to, you know, go into is like, okay, what's the relationship with marriage and sex? Sex is a marital act. This is one of the main reasons I just did this full-scale militant rejection of my Catholic faith, because I didn't, I didn't want to hear that. I did not want to hear that. I didn't want to live that. I didn't want to believe that. So what does that mean? Well, sex is the marital act. Sex is the act whereby one body and soul composite is totally, completely given to one body and soul composite. What does that mean? It means that you are not just your body. You have a soul. And that soul was created immediately by God. Immediately, right? My sister just had her fourth boy, James. And you look upon this miracle of this child, and you guys are going to be doing this soon, right? And you're looking at this, and you're be like, where did this thing come from? It just dropped out of eternity. And you know what's amazing about children? I said this to my sister. I said, do you ever feel like James has been, this is like when he was a week old, and I said, James is a week old, but do you ever, can you even remember what life was like before him? Like, he literally drops out of eternity. And kids are just like, I, I'm sure that, um, that any, any couple who's had kids here could say this. It's like, we couldn't imagine life without them. It just doesn't make sense. Why? Because you didn't just create them. You co-created with God. God created their soul and you created their body. And that's what makes them so unbelievably unique. And just you look at them and you're like, you are a living mystery. And you have souls. And your souls matter. 
And your souls matter in sex, right? And I know I heard this one time uh, in a in a course I was taking in college. But animals are never sad after sex. You don't have sad, I don't know, dolphins or something like that, right? This this, this doesn't happen. Why? Because they don't have souls. They don't have rational souls. They can't feel betrayed or used in sex. And we all know that's not the case for human beings. So this is why we reserve sex for marriage. Not because we want to suppress it, not because we hate sex. We love sex, right? Jesus' teaching on sexuality is the most beautiful thing in the church has just been expounding on that for centuries. But it's been so confused because we're living in a culture of such license, radical license, right? The whole project of the sexual revolution, which happened in, primarily in 1968, which we're living in, was to destroy the Judeo-Christian foundations of Western civilization by up, kind of uprooting a sexual revolution, by dislocating sex from marriage and saying, this is for everybody and anybody whenever they want. And so the kind of sexual perversion and license in the culture, we all grew up with this. We all grew up with this. And so just to come at you and say, quit doing this, quit doing this, quit doing this, well, that's not sufficient. But also to say, oh, it's fine that you're living together. It's fine that you're sleeping together. That's not okay also. Why? Because you're lying to yourselves. And you're not trying to lie to yourself. And I don't think you're malicious if you're doing that. But you're telling a lie to the other, and we're going to invite you tonight to just stop doing that. Why? Because it's going to make your marriage, your, the night of your wedding, that much more beautiful. And Father Brian and Father Sean and I are not, we're not going to hardline you. We're not going to drill you. There's no hoops to jump through, right? We're here to support you and to help you with this. And we really value vulnerability and openness in conversation. And we're not going to say you got to move out, right? But make, make the kind of accommodations to say sex belongs in our marriage, and once we make that total gift of self in the vows, then we can make the total gift of self in that conjugal sexual act. And it will be more beautiful and more profound, and it will only get richer as you get older. All right? So sex belongs for marriage, and it's not separated from it. Any extramarital acts, right? pornography, masturbation, these things, um, they destroy us. They destroy us, and they're going to just destroy you as a person and destroy your marriage. And so we just want to be rid of that premarital sex, extramarital sex, that's not what we're about. We believe in something greater. We're striving for something more noble. Okay. Number three, the purpose of marriage is self-fulfillment. This is a tough one. This is tough with any friendship. Purpose of marriage is self-fulfillment. Father Brian spoke really beautifully about Positano. I was there, and I was also in a bad spot. And part of the reason I was in a bad spot was because I was looking for my brothers. I'm a part, Father Sean and Father Brian are a part of just an amazing group of 20 priests and seminarians. It's a, wild, it's a wild group of asses, I would say, you know, uh, if you've met them. Some of you have met them. But these are the best men I've known. These are, the, these are the men I want to be in battle with and I want to share my life with. But I got to a point, we were about 10 years into this thing, uh, and I was like, I'm looking for these guys to fulfill my life. And they're not, and I resent the hell out of them for it. And that resentment had been building for years. I didn't even know it, Right? I cannot be fulfilled by my relationships in this life. And even as a Christian, even as somebody's praying, we look for that. Why? Because relationships are so immediate. They're so tangible. They're so palpable to us. And especially in marriage, your greatest temptation is going to be to say, I expect you to fulfill my needs, to fulfill who I am. And you can't. You can't. 
And I think you guys have been doing this long enough to know that. But I've preached at many weddings to say the greatest temptation in your marriage is to think that you will find fulfillment in your marriage. You won't. You won't. Plato had this notion that two people were like two halves and that marriage brought them together, right? And so they became completed. And that's a nice image. We don't believe that, right? We don't believe that anthropologically, that I'm a half walking around. This is why celibate existence is possible for a Christian man. We believe that you are whole in God and that this person, your spouse, is going to be the means by which you come to that, all right? So the purpose of your marriage is not personal fulfillment. What is the purpose of it then? Well, the church kind of very clearly lays this out. And again, this is all the teaching of Jesus. Everybody likes to say Jesus was a nice guy. You know, he was like Gandhi and these other types and he taught some nice truths. And we can kind of draw that into our kind of postmodern ethos, whatever. This is Jesus. The church representing Jesus, clarifying, elucidating, kind of using different language to help us in different ages understand it. And what the church says is the purpose of your marriage is not your own fulfillment. You will be fulfilled in God through marriage. But the purpose is twofold. And we call these ends or, or purposes. This is the destination. This is Santiago de Compostela. This is where you're going. And those ends are twofold, unitive and procreative. Unity and procreation. So what does that mean? Well, that means that the purpose of your marriage, the point of it, the reason you're getting into this, is to unite yourself to the other and to bear fruit. So that means that the bond unites us and that we need to live this kind of unity But we don't just live the unity. We also live with this procreativity, which means that we are not about just kind of living this sweet life together, but also about bringing others into our sweet life, right? We want to bring about and procreate. We are for creation. We're procreation. We like when things are created, right? Which means that we like mountains and we like flowers and we we don't like death. We like birth. We like generation. We like creation. That's why you're doing this. You know, there's a lot of fear around bringing kids up in the world. And there's a lot of technology that has been introduced to say, you don't have to do it unless you want to do it. And frankly, our populations are rising and you really need to kind of, kind of keep this down. What betrays the unitive and the procreative ends of marriage are these two technological devices that have been introduced in the last 50 years called in vitro fertilization and artificial contraception. Mike and Marilyn talked yesterday about in vitro fertilization. What it does is it creates a human life outside of the love of a man and a woman. Now, when a couple struggles with childbirth, this is a very difficult thing, right? When when they're barren and sterile, this is extremely painful. It's a terrible cross to bear. But that doesn't mean that we have the right to use technology to then manipulate and control and create life. And we have the technology... But that doesn't mean we should just necessarily be doing it. And from our perspective, the unit of dimension matters. <clears throat> Likewise, procre- or excuse me, contraception. Contraception could be very simply defined as you're rendering a fertile act infertile. Right? So natural planning is not contraceptive. It can be used selfishly, but it's never contraceptively used. Contraception is when we sterilize, sterilize women. And again, we had a great uh, conversation about this this morning with Katie and Jordan talking about um, what does this actually look like? Why does the church promote this? All right, so that's the third. The purpose of marriage is not personal fulfillment. It's to live out these kind of unitive and procreative ends. All right. Father Brian and I were talking about this. We've been doing this retreat for uh, almost 10 years. Contraception used to be the big one 10 years ago. Isn't that crazy? That was the one that would really kind of 
frustrate and, and uh, cause people a lot of consternation. It's not anymore. The next two, this is where it really gets, uh, really gets down to it. And this is where it gets really difficult. This is when I finish my bourbon. Right? <laughs> Number four. The, the definition of marriage between one man and one woman is a social construct. The definition of marriage between one man and one woman is a socially constructed reality. That, that was a dogma I was taught as a kid, as a high schooler. Um, I remember learning this in philosophy classes in high school, right? That the world is about power, the Catholic Church is about power, and this whole patriarchal system has been imposed on marriage and family in order to reinforce the power structures that, of a male-dominated world. This is, this is the narrative. If you've never heard this, I don't, I don't know what to say. I mean, it's, it's in us so deeply that marriage between one man and one woman was something that we created. Okay? So why does this matter? Well, because the revisionist understanding of marriage exists in order to create marriage between two men, two women. Or anything, right? It just it's undefining marriage. The point of it, it doesn't actually create something positive, the, the world's understanding of marriage. It's just working to un- undermine the, the Judeo-Christian understanding of what marriage is. So why is marriage between one man and one woman? Why? Well, because only one man and one woman can physically enter into a comprehensive union. They are the only ones who can actually undertake this whole thing. One man, one woman, one time, vows. Bodies matter. Bodies matter. And the body is part of the union. For the revisionist understanding of marriage, it's not. It's, a, it's about the soul. It's about connection, right? It's about sentiment. The body doesn't matter as much. It doesn't matter if these two people, you put these two together and they can't create children. That doesn't matter because of the way we've redefined marriage. But from this other perspective, marriage is between one man and one woman. And that's not to say something hateful. That's to speak about a reality, a biological, scientific fact that when you put these two together and they enter into this comprehensive bond together, new life is born. And that's it. And you can change whatever you want with technology and it doesn't change the actual fact and the actual state of things. And we know that. Nature has given it to us this way. Why? Because man and woman signify in the nuptial meaning of their body, what God is in the world in a way that is unlike anything else. So this is why we cannot accept the tenets of gay marriage. And that's really hard to do. It's really, really hard to do. And if you have gay friends or gay family members, you know this. And if you feel that resistance, I get it. But we can't compromise on this because if we do, we lose the integrity of marriage. Sexual complementarity between one man and one woman is not a power-based story. We've got to change the narrative, right? Nietzsche was not right. The world is not about power. It's not about the will to power. It's not about men dominating. It's about two equal persons who are distinct but are equal entering into this kind of union. And that is the beauty of sexual complementarity. And what is happening is a wholesale destruction of that beauty, the complementary union of one man and one woman. And when you meet great married couples, you don't feel like they are power playing each other. There are plenty of examples of bad ones. 
But there's also plenty of examples of good ones, right? Christian behavior does not dictate what we believe, right? That's part of the tragedy of it, is that we continue to scandalize the world by our sins. And this is priests, just as much. But we can't actually say, we've moved beyond this notion of sexual complementarity into a world where we can undefine marriage and we can allow basically anybody at any time to enter into that. Gay marriage is a huge question. It's a huge conversation. Uh, How to do that in the world, how to relate, how to kind of take this on. These are all really, really important questions, which I hope come up in your marriage preparation meetings. I hope you're talking to Father Brian. He's certainly covering this stuff in in, uh, RCIA. But for tonight, all we're saying is that this is part of the integral vision of the holistic vision of what marriage is. All right, last but not least, we've moved beyond gay marriage. We're living in an age of gender ideology. Okay, and what does that mean? We've not only undefined marriage, but something happened in like literally the last three years where gender also became deconstructed. So there's no such thing as maleness there's no such thing as feel, a femaleness. And what's really scary about this is that the way that we just kind of wholesale took it on as a culture. We just kind of woke up one morning and decided, yeah, this is no longer real. Gender doesn't exist anymore. And Jordan Peterson, who I really respect deeply, has been going against this. And he's saying, all of a sudden as a culture, we're rejecting gender distinction, gender differentiation. He's like, this is a biological fact. Gender differentiation goes back a bi- over a billion years. It predates the existence of multicellular animals. Maleness and femaleness is part of creation, right? We can't just say this is gone. Now, are there complexities with it? Yeah, gender dysphoria is real. And I've worked with people who struggle with it and who live in it. And you can't just say, well, sorry, that's not what the church teaches. Completely insufficient. And the church is not doing a good enough job of articulating this and reaching out in a way that is loving and understanding. And we need to do a better job of that, period. But this is the fifth and final dogma that you've been told and I've been told. It's impossible to hold the Catholic belief on marriage and love those who don't. You and I have been told that to hold this belief means to hate And that's evil. That's a terrible lie. That's not true. I can sit with my friend who is gay and listen to him and be his friend. And him also know I'm a Catholic priest who believes everything that the Catholic uh, Catholic Church teaches. And he knows that that's not hate. But ideology is at work. Ideology means what? Ideology is a worldview that builds around one idea and it's driven by power. And this has been at work for decades, if not centuries, to undermine what? To undermine Christianity. So this whole thing is driven and it's everywhere. And it's like, we're kind of like, oh shit, we can't even get our hands around and realize it. It's just in us. And you can come here on this retreat and say, okay, that was kind of nice. I met some nice people. But then you're going to go back to your workplace. Then you're going to watch Netflix. Then you're going to be back in the world and you're going to be fed the same ideology, which is saying what? This Christian vision of marriage and sexuality is doing violence and hatred to the world and has to be destroyed. And if you don't help us destroy it, you are the problem and we will destroy you. And that's the future for the Christian. 
And the reason we take this so seriously now is because the days of a kind of soft, comfortable, liberal Christianity are over. Your families, your children will be faced with what? Gender ideology? Yes, but it's even moving beyond that. Transhumanism. This is the next frontier. Until everything is destroyed, whatever the spirit is in the world will not rest. And we have to stand against that. All right, so closing it up. What do we do? Well, all of us are in different places with what we've heard tonight. And that's good. You're, you're where you're supposed to be right now. Great line from a mentor of ours named Father Goronsky, who Ian knew. Live in the is, not in the should. Live in the is tonight, not in the should. Okay, this is, this is where I'm at on these issues. All right? Don't leave here saying this is what you should believe. This is where you should be. This is, you should understand this. Should, 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 should. No. This is about is. Live in the is, not in the should. All right? But... Realize that you can interiorize these truths in faith. What is needed is a generation of young Catholic married couples and families who have interiorized the truths of the faith, especially around marriage and sex, interiorize them in love. You can do it. You will do it. And you'll meet people who will hate you and people who will tell you, you're horrible. How could you possibly believe this? And that suffering works to heal and perfect the heart. You can interiorize this truth in love, but it's going to take a lot of work. It's going to take a lot of honesty, and it's going to take a lot of continual growth. You don't graduate out of marriage prep when you get that certificate and say, great, we checked the box and moved on. Some will do that. Okay, good luck. But for those of us who are really about this adventure, which is the Christian life, interiorizing these truths in love will take time. It'll take humility, but it will happen because God is real. And God has a plan for your life, and it involves everything we've been speaking about tonight. So, we close with this word. Jesus, we hope in you. Jesus, we're encouraged by you. Jesus, we love you. But we don't always believe. And we're afraid to believe. And we're afraid to give our hearts to you. And Jesus, tonight as we prepare and approach this altar, we pray for the gift of faith. We pray for the gift of openness. We pray that we might say yes we might open our hearts and our minds and our arms to your truth. But we also pray against this, the voice of self-accusation, of self-condemnation, which is never of God. And we pray that our hearts might come to the truth in freedom and in your love. We pray all this through Christ our Lord. Amen. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, everybody.